Hello and welcome to WaveScan, the international DX program from Adventist World Radio. Researched and written in Indianapolis by Dr. Adrian Peterson and produced in the studios of WRMI Shortwave in Okeechobee, Florida, USA. I'm Jeff White. This is edition NWS 731 for release on Sunday, February 26, 2023. Today on WaveScan, the radio wedding that was conducted twice on the same day. The rising costs of shortwave transmitter tubes and electricity rates. And the 2023 SWL Winterfest is coming up soon. Well, as we mentioned three weeks back, the first medium wave radio broadcasting station licensed and on the air in Florida was WDAE in Tampa in 1921. Their first location was in the Moss Building at the corner of Zach and Tampa Streets with the two antenna towers on the roof. Two years later, the station moved into a building previously occupied by the First National Bank at 114 North Franklin Street. And interestingly, that historic building was the first brick building erected in Tampa. Here now is Ray Robinson with the story of the radio wedding that was conducted twice on the same day. Thanks, Jeff. Over the years, the station has operated from studios and offices at several different locations, including the Bales Isles building in Davis Islands, the Allied building at the corner of Tampa and Cass Streets, and also in the Tampa Terrace Hotel on the 12th floor. They're currently on the air from studios and offices on West Gandhi Boulevard in South Tampa. Initially, the first transmitters for station WDAE were co-sited with the studios and offices. Other sites for their transmitters have been in Forest Hills and Egypt Lake, though the current location is near the Gandhi Street Bridge in St. Petersburg. Over the years, WDAE has operated on nearly a dozen different medium wave channels with a variety of power levels, though currently the transmitter emits 5 kilowatts on 1250 kHz. Now, the story about the wedding ceremony that was conducted twice on the same day at virtually the same location for the same bridal couple. That was the first wedding that was celebrated live over radio station WDAE, and it was claimed as possibly the first on radio in the world. Our research, together with additional research from Wendy Heap in Jacksonville, Florida, indicates that it was indeed an early wedding on radio in the United States, but not the first. The unusual radio wedding ceremony in Tampa, Florida was for Mr. Richard Williams and Miss Valorin Driggers, and it occurred in August 1922. At the time, radio station WDAE was still at its original location in what was the Mars Brothers commercial building with frontage on East Zack Street in Tampa. Actually, the first Williams Driggers wedding ceremony was not celebrated in the studios of the three-month-old radio station WDAE. Instead, the ceremony took place upon the back tray of a truck which was decorated with flowers and greenery for the occasion. The truck was parked on East Zack Street in front of the Mars building, the name of which can be seen in an official wedding photograph. There were just four wedding participants standing on the back of the truck the bride and groom, Valorin and Richard, together with the best man and a bridesmaid. 
A lengthy electrical wire connected the microphone aboard the truck with the radio equipment inside the building, though the church pastor was inside the WDAE studio itself with another microphone. However, Miss Valorian Driggers, or perhaps we should say by now Mrs Valorian Williams, was not satisfied with the validity of the wedding ceremony that was conducted on the back of the truck, with the church pastor being inside the building. So in order to make sure, she had all of the wedding personnel from the truck go into the radio studio in the building, where the pastor was invited to conduct a repeat wedding ceremony, though this second wedding event was not broadcast over the air. That was probably the only wedding ceremony in the world that was conducted twice on the same day, at virtually the same location, for the same bridal couple. A few years later, another wedding service in Tampa, Florida, was broadcast over that same radio station, WDAE. However, it was not just a single event, but rather it was a mass wedding with many couples participating. During the year 1927, radio station WDAE established a remote studio in the Florida State Fairgrounds in Tampa, in a building identified as Wall Hall. The WDAE studio was known as the Crystal Studio, and it was in use on many occasions with the broadcast of information about significant public events taking place on the fairgrounds. On one occasion, the Florida Bridal and Wedding Expo staged a large group wedding on the fairgrounds, in which a score or more of couples participated. Radio station WDAE covered the progressive events, as well as the actual wedding ceremony itself. For another wedding situation, radio station WDAE agreed to play appropriate music for the beginning of wedding ceremonies in a private home in Tampa on January 5, 1928. The music was the Lohengrin Wedding March, the wedding venue was the bride's family home at 120 West North Street, and the bridal couple were Miss Florence Bryan and Mr Thomas Hayes, and the officiating pastor was Zach Hayes, the brother of the groom. The wedding music was timed to play over radio station WDAE at 6.15pm, the exact same time as Miss Florence Bryan made her appearance. The same music was played again over the same radio station at the time when the wedding ceremony came to an end. Back then, station WDAE was still located in the Tampa Bay Times newspaper building on East Sack Street. The orchestration for that wedding was the same music that you heard at the beginning of this edition of Wavescan. Back to you, Jeff. Indeed it was. Thank you very much, Ray Robinson, for that story. Well, last week we had the first of several reports we'll be presenting about the A23 High Frequency Coordination Conference in Tunisia, where shortwave frequencies were coordinated for stations worldwide for the A23 broadcast period, which begins March 26th. To get to Tunis, the capital of Tunisia, from Miami, we took the only direct flight from Miami to all of Africa on Royal Air Morocco from Miami to Casablanca, Morocco, a flight of about eight and a half hours on a Boeing 787 Dreamliner. 
In Casablanca, we transferred to a smaller Royal Air Maroc plane for a four-hour flight to Tunis. Personnel from ASBU, the Arab States Broadcasting Union, were at the airport waiting to whisk us through customs and immigration and then straight to the new Asbu Hotel in downtown Tunis, the venue for the HFCC A23 conference. What is commonly known as the HFCC conference is actually a joint conference of the HFCC, the ASBU, and the ABU, the Asia-Pacific Broadcasting Union. It's collectively called the HFCC, ASBU, ABU Global Coordination Conference. Now, since that's quite a mouthful, we usually just call it the HFCC Conference. There's an A-season conference and a B-season conference each year, always in a different location around the world. Besides the main activity of planning and coordinating shortwave broadcast schedules so that no one is interfering with anyone else, the big topics being discussed in Tunis were the rising costs of electricity and shortwave transmitter tubes, and the sometimes difficulty in obtaining those tubes. For those of you who are not familiar with all the technicalities of international shortwave broadcasting, those transmitters are generally very high power, from 50 to 500,000 watts, and they use a lot of electricity. Transmitters at this power level are not solid state. They use multiple large tubes that often cost tens of thousands of dollars for each one. Each tube has a certain lifetime, after which it dies out and needs to be replaced. The big final tubes in shortwave transmitters are not glass tubes like you used to see in TV sets. They are generally ceramic tubes. However, they are very delicate and they have to be very well packed because they can be easily damaged in shipping. The size can be, for example, a yard high and a foot wide, and they weigh enough that you need a forklift to place them on a semi-truck, which is what is typically used to ship them. You can't just take them to UPS or FedEx. In the Western world, there are two main shortwave tube manufacturers, IMAC, based in the United States, and TALIS, based in France. Tubes are manufactured in China, but they are mainly used in Chinese transmitters of which there are a lot in China. Now, when one of these tubes goes bad, you can open up your pocketbook very wide and buy a new one, or if it isn't badly damaged, you can rebuild it at a company called Econco in California, which, by the way, was bought by IMAC several years ago. Econco will rebuild tubes manufactured by IMAC or Tallis or most other companies, but not those made in China. So here's the situation. A new tube for a 100,000-watt transmitter, for example, may cost around $28,000. It can be rebuilt for half that price by sending the bad tube, called a dud, to Econco. And the rebuilt ones generally last as long as the new ones. But after they're rebuilt several times, or if they happen to be too badly damaged when they blow out, you have no choice but to buy a new one and it can take several months to get a new one from IMAC or TALIS after you order it. So what generally happens is that every time a tube goes bad, you order a rebuilt one from Econco, send them the dud, and they rebuild the dud and keep it on a shelf until you blow another tube and need a new one. So they can ship the rebuilt ones out to you quickly if you have one or more banked with them.
But let's say you don't have the funds to keep a spare tube on hand, and one of your tubes goes out. If you order a new one, it can take three or six months or more to get a new one built. Meantime, if you don't have a spare, you're off the air until that new tube gets to you. That's obviously a very bad situation. So, at the A23 HFCC conference, representatives from IMAC, Econco, and Tallis were invited to attend to talk about their products and to discuss with shortwave broadcasters their needs and concerns. In general, shortwave stations wanted to make the manufacturers aware of the market for their tubes. Because these manufacturers make tubes for a lot of industries, such as scientific, medical, and military users, and shortwave stations are just a very small portion of their clientele. Now, let's assume that you have enough funds to constantly be buying new or rebuilt tubes. The next problem is that it takes a tremendous amount of electricity to run them in your shortwave transmitter. And as I'm sure you know, electricity prices have been going through the roof in most of the world recently, especially after the beginning of the Ukraine war. So whether you're a government-owned or funded shortwave station or a privately-owned station that sells airtime to outside clients, you have a problem. It's costing you more and more money for every hour that you transmit due to the increasing electricity costs. Most stations have a budget that they have to adhere to, and the stations that sell airtime don't want to increase prices to their clients because they might lose them. So what is the answer? you have to reduce your transmitter power. Most transmitters can operate at half of their rated power level and sometimes lower. So they lower their power to reduce their electrical consumption and their power bill. You might think this would be bad for listeners who might find it harder to hear their favorite stations, but generally this is not the case. Most stations can reduce their power by half and still be able to provide about the same quality signal to their listeners. That's because higher power does not really translate into a better signal at the ratio you might imagine. In other words, for example, a 100 kilowatt signal is not twice as strong as a 50 kilowatt signal. There's only about a 3 dB difference in the signal strength, which is not very detectable in the ear of the listener in most cases. So the bottom line is that stations are cutting back on their transmitter power in order to keep costs down in the face of rising electricity prices. And by the way, if you run a transmitter at lower power, your tubes will last a lot longer too. So you're saving on two fronts. Okay, that's our primer on the concerns of today's shortwave broadcasters. And all of these things were thoroughly discussed at the HFCC A23 conference in Tunis. No doubt they'll continue these discussions at the upcoming conferences in Australia in September of this year. We'll have more on HFCC A23 coming up in future editions of WaveScan. Last week we told you about the 100th anniversary of the BBC, and Ray Robinson has some additional information about that which is of interest. He found a short recording of Jonathan Marks of Radio Netherlands interviewing Dr. Graham Mitten, discussing the origins of the BBC Empire Service. Dr. Mitten was head of audience research for the BBC World Service for many years. The audio clip that we'll play for you in a moment really is a postscript to how the BBC's Empire Service came to be launched in 1932. 
Apparently, Lord Reith, the first director of the BBC, was not a strong believer in the usefulness of shortwave in the early days. And until 1932, the BBC had no shortwave transmitter. All broadcasting in and from the UK was on medium wave. But Philips in Eindhoven, Holland, started shortwave transmissions in 1927 with PCJ to provide some content to encourage sales of their radio receivers. Of course, there aren't many Dutch speakers in the world, so to reach a larger audience, they began relaying the BBC's medium wave signal from Daventry on shortwave to Southern Africa and India. And it was partly in response to letters the BBC received from overseas listeners asking why they had to tune to PCJ to hear the BBC that Lord Reith eventually decided to launch the Empire Service. Subsequent audience research in the mid-1930s clearly showed that the vast majority of overseas listeners heard the BBC by direct-to-listener shortwave broadcasts rather than by relays over local medium-wave transmitters run by the colonial broadcasting services in each country. Incidentally, says Ray, the BBC medium-wave signal relayed by PCJ in the Netherlands was most likely the new 50-kilowatt transmitter at Daventry, 5GB, which was brought into service on 610 kilohertz in August of 1927. Let's listen now to Dr. Graham Mitten of BBC Audience Research talking with Jonathan Marks. I'm writing a history of uh, of the external services, or world service, or empire service, whichever you like to call it. It had different names at different times. From the beginning, it started in 1932, and I was given a grant by the Open University to look into the background of the world service, empire service, in terms of audiences and audience research. And I wrote some articles which were peer-reviewed and published in academic journals, which actually look at that period of the 1930s. I was astonished to find that Lord Reith, when he asked somebody to look into the possibility of international broadcasting, that they actually did some research. They wrote to various sources to try and find out, did people have shortwave radios? Did they use the shortwave part of their radio to listen to anything? What did they listen to? All that kind of stuff. It wasn't systematic research in terms of doing surveys, but it was what we call nowadays desk research. You were trying to find out from existing sources what we knew about the audience and what we knew about the potential. And very impressive some of that work was. Reith believed that international radio, the Empire Service, which he started in 1932, would mostly reach people around the empire only by rebroadcasts. The BBC transmission from Daventry, or Droitwich, Daventry, would, would be received by the radio stations in Guyana, Gold Coast, Fiji, or wherever it was, and then be retransmitted on the local medium wave. That, of course, did happen. But we soon found out in the 1930s that most of the listening was to shortwave directly on people's home radio sets. So that was discovered by, uh, by the research at those, that time was not, actually had not yet arrived, but the research was done. There wasn't a department called audience research, but they put questionnaires in, 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 uh, the, the, in, in, the, in the mail, and I've seen some of those, they came back and they were analyzed. So they did some mail research. 
that that uh, that point you just made about uh, relays is actually quite interesting because if you look in the Philips archives in Eindhoven, they have the original so-called PCJ J transmitter, which was built in 1927. Philips was obviously wanting to sell radio sets, right? So and if there was nothing to listen to, people didn't buy it. Mm. So, um, but I found evidence that they did relay medium wave broadcast from from Daventry uh, to uh, target areas in South Africa and also in what was then British India. Uh, feedback from through the D diplomatic corps came by saying, so why do we have to listen to the BBC via a Dutch transmitter? That's a very good point. <laughs> I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> yeah, but there's, there seems to be some evidence around sort of 1930-31 that that was a contributing factor. It wasn't the only factor, of course, but for for the BBC to build its own shortwave transmitters, because uh, up to that point, they only had medium wave because the Dutch were picking up the medium wave signal and ah. retransmitting it on shortwave to Africa. That was Jonathan Marks of Radio Netherlands speaking with Dr. Graham Mitten, former audience research director of the BBC World Service. And now some news for those of you who are familiar with the SWL Winterfest in Pennsylvania in the United States. Well, the 2023 36th annual Winter SWL Fest will take place, but it will be in virtual space again this year rather than physical space. In other words, it's online only. Uh, details about how to register and use the Zoom platform will be forthcoming shortly, and we'll tell you in a moment how to get those. All of the sessions, except the shortwave shindig, uh, normally last one hour, except where noted, but they may run longer or shorter at the option of the presenter. The Bob Brown Memorial Hospitality Suite is a virtual hospitality room Sponsored by the Canadian International DX Club. It's opening at 9 a.m. This is a one-day event, by the way. It's on Saturday, March 4th. And it will begin with this hospitality room at 0900. Uh, that's Eastern Standard Time. And remain available over the course of the event. Now, at 9.30, the uh, first presentation will uh, take place, and that's by yours truly. They've asked me to participate uh, as the general manager of WRMI, Radio Miami International, and we'll talk about uh, hurricanes here in Okeechobee, Florida, the ins and outs of operating the station, uh, and uh, also we'll talk about the National Association of Shortwave Broadcasters here in the U.S., and the high-frequency coordination conferences. So we'll have a perspective on where shortwave broadcasting may be going in the coming years. At 10.30 in the morning, Eastern Time, scanner not required. Tom Swisher says it doesn't have to be a scanner. There are excellent alternatives if you're looking for other ways to monitor your favorite McDonald's drive through <laughs> At 11.30 in the morning, a break uh, for the uh, Bob Brown Hospitality Suite. And at 1 p.m., Choosing a used receiver from 1950 through today. Skip Carey. Uncle Skip Carey will scour his sources to find the best and safest ways to buy used radios, regardless of whether you're looking for a collectible or a modern listening tool. At 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time, radio is supposed to be free. Mysterious signals that go bump in the night. Odd sounds on odd frequencies in the middle of the afternoon. 
AM signals with very wide, full-fidelity bandwidth. Distorted sideband transmissions playing strange music and making weird images appear on their listeners' software-defined radio displays. Welcome to the world of free radio on shortwave. Larry Will presents a little bit of history and a look at the current state of shortwave pirate radio in North America. And there may be some special guest personalities sharing their perspectives on free radio. At 4 p.m. on Saturday, March 4th, Back to the Classics, Part 2. Dan Robinson has spent the months since the last online SWL Fest doing some thinking about receivers and features that make them stand out from the crowd. And he'll file his special report from his basement in Potomac, Maryland. At 5 p.m., help us plan future fests. Join Rich Cuff and John Figliasi, the hosts for the SWO Fest, to discuss whether and how to best resume an in-person event, as well as how the online version might continue and improve. And at 5.30, a break for the hospitality suite. Uh, Then at 7 p.m., in memoriam, Sheldon Harvey recounts those that moved on over the past year to that DX shack in the sky where propagation is always perfect and RF noise doesn't exist. Then at 7.30 p.m., yum cha, dim sum, or rice tuffle. Australian DXer Mark Fahey will have an exploration of the joy of being a broadcasting enthusiast living in an equatorial jungle. I had a chance to meet uh, Mark at the Australian Radio DX Club meeting in 2015, and uh, uh, I'm sure he will have a very interesting talk. At uh, 9 p.m., the shortwave shindig, still in exile. Your host, David Doran, is whooping up another multi-hour listening party with plenty of shortwave sounds, music, special guests, updates on New York City pirate radio, and the latest installment of Worldwide Waves with uh, Dave Gorin's BBC radio documentary series on global community radio, this year featuring Inuit radio in northern Quebec, a Romani radio station in Hungary, a rural station in Malawi, and a clandestine in Myanmar. So, all of that coming up at the Winter SWL Fest on Saturday, March 4th, 2023. If you can get uh, more information on how to sign up uh, to get a Zoom link for it at swlfest.com. That's S-W-L-F-E-S-T dot com. And we end today's WaveScan with more traditional music from Tunisia. Thanks for listening to WaveScan, the international DX program from Adventist World Radio, researched and written in Indianapolis by Dr. Adrian Peterson. Next week on the program, the rising sea and the early radio scene in African Senegal, the American shortwave scene in 1927, and our Japan DX report, Coming up next week. WaveScan is heard weekly on KSDA in Guam, AWR relays in various locations, WRMI in Florida, WWCR in Tennessee, KVOH in California, Voice of Hope Africa in Zambia, and IRRS Italy. 
Send reception reports directly to the station you're listening to. Reports for KSDA and AWR sites should go to qsl at awr.org. Other correspondence, not reception reports, can be sent to wavescan at awr.org. I'm Jeff White at WRMI Shortwave in Okeechobee, Florida. Till next week, good listening, everyone.